As we explore God's gift of sacred song in this August sermon series, we turn to the book of Job today. It's quite a perplexing story in Hebrew scriptures. Quite simply, a man named Job, who is introduced as righteous and beyond fault, is robbed of every blessing and comfort. His fortune withers, his family entirely perishes, and his health turns to constant pain as he sits with open sores oozing in his body. Friends arrive to counsel him and instead exacerbate his demise by assessing that yes, he must have caused it in some way. So much suffering could not befall a man with an unblemished moral conduct. Surely he deserves this. Throughout the story, Job never doubts God's presence, but instead in a crescendo building poetic rage, Job demands that God answer how and why. And God does answer Job. Today's reading described by scholars as the most sophisticated poetry, and I quote from one of them, virtuosic wordplay and sound play of the original Hebrew. This is when God sets Job straight. And before we hear God's reply, I invite you to please pray with me. God, silence in us any voice but yours that we might hear beyond the words and between the lines. Stir within us that we might catch a glimpse of your goodness and your will for us today. May our meditations on these words blend in harmony, pleasing to your ear and resonant in our lives. We ask this in the name of your word made flesh, our Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. Listen for God's word as I read from the 38th chapter of the book of Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Who is this that darkens by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, and I will question you, and you shall inform me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Or who fixed its measurements? Do you know who stretched a line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid the cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Here ends our reading. Now there's a legend back from the sixth century before the common era of a man who passed by a blacksmith shop and was captivated by what he heard coming from within. There was the rhythmical cadence of hammer on metal blending into a harmonious unity. So let's get our minds into what he might have heard. So think of an old Western movie that you might have heard in which there's a blacksmith with a hammer on an anvil forging something. Or maybe you've been to a a historic village that reenacts what a blacksmith shop might have been. Put that sound of the hammer on the metal in in your ear. Determined to find out why, this man found that the hammers used by the smiths differed in weights and each produced a distinctive pitch. The most agreeable musical pitches, pitches that were pleasing to the ear, were formed by hammers whose weights could be compared with the simplest mathematical ratios, one to two, two to three, and so on. Later, away from the blacksmith's shop, Pythagoras found not only that different weights of hammers, but also varied lengths of string produced different pitches such that he could anticipate 
harmonies or discord. This led to his awareness that the harmony that we hear is rational and the harmony of the universe can be expressed in mathematical ratios or proportions apprehended by the mind with musical sounds mediating their ratios for us to then enjoy. Thanks to Pythagoras for hundreds and hundreds of years from the sixth century before the time of Christ until the time of the enlightenment, if you sought to study math, you studied music. It was that mathematical. Yes, this is one and the same Pythagoras who gave us the, ge ge the geometric theorem for a right triangle, a squared plus b squared equals c squared. Pythagoras also studied the night stars and planets to discover that they moved according to a predictable mathematical equations, and thus they too must resonate, producing a symphony of music, even if we so far away cannot hear. Patience, curiosity, respect for what lies beyond, and exploring with only wonder. These attributes, along with humility, inspired Pythagoras to grasp how created beings exist together. Now, such as an example of wisdom, it's acquired by tuning your ear to the world around or suspending your conception of what you think should be to instead be startled by what is. Other forms of wisdom arise from the inquiry of values and moral actions among humans. There's a body of literature called wisdom literature that asks the lofty and yet raw questions about the meaning of life, what is right behavior, and these questions usually rise when normalcy slips away and we have to wonder, how do we order our lives? The book of Job stands at the pinnacle of such wisdom literature. It bears nothing in common with the writings of the Torah of oracles and laws received by Moses from God on Sinai. Those collections of books decree to the faithful that a moral life will lead to blessings and tranquilities. Actions have predictable consequences. And then the laws and the prophets also throughout the Old Testament prescribe a cause and effect. There's obedience and blessing. There's sin and punishment. We should be able to expect how to live. This is unlike the book of Job. Job lays bare the teeming contradictory nature in which beauty and violence coexist beyond human reason. How can it be that a man who conducted a morally upright existence suffer so greatly? Now, Job's author is unknown, but may have penned this story as early as the 6th century before the Common Era, perhaps contemporary with Pythagoras. And this book shares many common themes of Greek philosophy's inquiry into the values and the disposition of the human condition. From the depths of Job's suffering while sitting in an ash heap, he reasons his way from creation's beginning with order and causality, asking God how and why. There has to be a reason. Then after 36 fist-shaking chapters of accusations, out of the whirlwind, Job hears. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge to begin the answer by naming Job's ignorance? Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations to demand that Job notice the very substance upon which he sits? He doesn't understand its origin or its destiny. 
who set the cornerstone when the morning stars began to sing. That cornerstone is the basis from which all created bodies receive their orbit, dance in alignment, and remain balanced. Yes, singing and harmony have existed from the very beginning, ordained by God as an aspect of life in which we participate, we do not control, we can only appreciate. We do not make octaves and intervals, minor chords, we participate. In further reply to Job, God asks, are you able, are you able to know any of what I have done? And then God moves from celestial being to the movement of the seas, the roar of the lions, and all of the mysteries of creation. In this time of a pandemic, I invite you to read Job chapters 38 to 40 and hear what God claims. So is this a punishing rebuke? Hardly. God only asks that we notice the nature of existence and wonder and understand we don't understand. God's speech does not bully or reprimand Job. Rather, God's rhetoric merely exposes the limits of Job's and all human perception. You see, we can become so anchored in a restricted compass of human knowledge in which we believe we're at the center so that our egos become bruised as our bodies are surprised when tragedy comes and hits us. We can get so caught up in demanding righteous rewards and justice that we fail to see God's hand and fingerprint throughout the cosmos. So in these chapters, God settles Job back into his place as part of a grand order that we can never completely know, only curiously wonder and respect. Right now, it feels as though our world has become unmoored from a stable compass. This pandemic demands for safety's sake that we refrain from so many activities that had bound us together and we're kind of still wandering around. And to preach a sermon series on song when we're prohibited from singing as we once did, something that was ordained and ordered by God reminds me of how unfair this pandemic is and how detached I have felt. Months ago, we removed all the chairs from this chancel where the choir would always sit, and I don't expect we'll have them back in 2020, and I can hear the echoes not only of the sound but also my feelings of being alone. Since the beginning of time, humans have made music. We have made music. Embedded within the Hebrew culture and confirmed in the early Christian church, the faithful have sung songs of praise and preserved the Psalter through melodic chants with call and response, joining voices together. It's how we, it's how we come to know God. It's how we praise God. Making music individually and collectively embeds faith into our bodies. It animates us with a visceral response as we express our praise to God. Now we could rail against the injustices and sing away to the demise of one another. As this pandemic rages, research and experience confirms that group singing remains one of the most toxic activities. Or we can silence ourselves, and many of us have not sung a measure since March. Or we can lean in as humans are prone and experiment. Turning to a professional singer and congregation member who has graced our choir for 20 years, 
I asked Alyssa Bennett what it's like for someone whose entire life is dedicated to singing to not sing with and for each other. And for those of you that know Alyssa or can put her face in your mind's eye, imagine her saying, at first it was horrible. That stay-at-home order must have compounded her loneliness. You see, the silence robbed her for a time being of what had always been her life. And then she described the journey of virtual choirs and duets and trios, finding her place in singing with others through recordings. She remarked that since the acoustics in most homes are awful, some singers retreated to their closets. In addition to capturing a voice on recording, intimate details were exposed of what hangs from the closet rods or might be heaped on the pile of the floor. And once you satisfy those physical requirements and all their attendant humility that it exposes, the emotional challenges can equally impair the effort. She confided that even professionals long before the pandemic, but particularly now, even professionals live with self-doubt and recording herself all alone exacerbates such feelings. At the time we spoke, she was working on recording as a member of a quartet for a Jewish congregation. Even though she was singing alone, she was not singing this, though, in her recording as if it were a solo. Her group learned that recording each voice independent of one another, even with an instrumental, created editing headaches. Trial and error from listening and measuring, though, led them to new insight. Instead of singing alone, one person, not necessarily the lead, would lay his part down on the recording next to the instrumental. So that when then Alyssa would record, she could listen to his voice and connect. She said, I quote, within a quad, there's no room to hide. Even missing a fraction of a note or our timing can absolutely disrupt the unity. As well, she was no longer alone in her recording. She was back to listening deeply to another person's voice and their breath and imagine their being. They're now creating art in a future tense. Recording with a virtual ensemble does not deny the pleasure of the music. It merely delays the immediacy. I quote Alyssa again. It was pretty awesome to hear during the editing process as doubt dissolves into pure pleasure. I heard her voice lift as she described in those technical tasks of editing together, there was an unfolding of holiness that continues to resonate in the music. It's still there. It is absolutely there. What might seem a solitary practice in reality crafts a community beyond time and place. And in my mind, I imagined Alyssa singing with the morning stars whose sound began light years ago and is still being blended today. We expect rational, ordered worlds as Pythagoras thought he'd uncovered. Centuries later, musicologists and mathematicians poked holes, though, at his theories. Job thought he lived a righteous life and that he deserved his fortune and health, and yet his ordered experience dissolved into suffering. Virtual choirs try to lift our spirits as we raise our song, and yet we still can't wait to fill ourselves shoulder to shoulder and sing from a hymnal. 
So we might feel as Job having lost income and stability and we grieve illness and death in this pandemic. It's not fair for us to have such suffering when we didn't cause this virus. We cannot understand the origin of all tragedy nor protect ourselves from such random ills. So go ahead and shake your fist at God. And like Job, the answer we receive may put us back into our place, back into a grand harmony when we admit we don't understand but we can only marvel at God. Because if we were to demand only a world of justice with rewards measured out based upon our moral conduct, we might forever sit in an ash heap. And yet it is Jesus who offers us the gift of unmerited grace. His mercy is beyond our understanding. His love is beyond measure. Christ calls us to live the way of the cross, looking into the eyes of the stranger with compassion, whether that person is wearing a mask or not, but to look into the eyes with compassion. And we are to care for the least of Jesus' children as we care for ourselves and our own. This way does not make sense, and yet mercy is what brings meaning and value and substance to our lives. So how does the story of Job resolve? Job answers. Job answers God with, I know you can do anything, and no devising is beyond you. Then Job's reverence for God turned him to pray for those companions who had doubted him and doubted God. And then God restores Job's life, his fortune, and he raises another family. And what we learn is that God's mercy is what gives meaning to our lives. May it be so, my friends. Amen.